From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with Dr. Gerald Kaminsky, director of UCLA Center for Health Policy Research, about the Republican-sponsored health care bill that is making its way through Congress. And after that conversation, Bob Peterson of Rethinking Schools joins us to discuss the state of Arkansas's proposed legislation to ban Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States from their public schools. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. For much of the past several years, the Republican-led Congress has promised to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Now they have put forth legislation they believe will achieve that goal. But will it? That remains the haunting question that they must now answer. Joining me to discuss the Affordable Care Act and its possible replacement is Dr. Gerald Kaminsky. Dr. Kaminsky is director of the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. Dr. Gerald Kaminsky, welcome to the public morality. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I was struck recently when uh, President Donald Trump acknowledged the complexity of health care. We didn't know how complex it was, I, I believe he said, or, or words to that uh, effect. Wow. And I, I took that to mean that he was acknowledging there was a gulf between the political rhetoric the political rhetoric and the actual policy. So my question to you, sir, is just in, in, in the abstract, why is health care policy so complicated? Wow, that's a difficult question. But I'm, first of all, I'm glad that, that uh, the president has finally realized what uh, basically everybody else in the country already knew. Right. Um, and so um, he's a little late to the game, but better late than never in this case. Um, the, uh, it's complicated because, uh, there are so many stakeholders, uh, it's, we're talking about our health and, and health is, is so personal and so valuable, uh, to us. Uh, and yet there, we have fundamental divisions in this country and have, uh, these are, these don't date to the last election. They don't date to 2000. They don't date to the 1990, uh, 90s, um, it dates to the origins of our country. We have a basic sort of fundamental difference of opinion in, the, in this country about whether health care is a right or whether health care is something that people have to earn. And uh, that fundamental, uh, fundamentally different viewpoint, I think, is what continues to divide us about what the right thing to do is to get us to what virtually every other industrial country uh, every other country in the world has already achieved, which is universal access to health care. Uh, now, uh, another um, easy question for you. Uh, <laughs> what is the Affordable Care Act? Now, now, I know that may sound redundant at this point, but it seems <laughs> that at least on the periphery where most of the discourse on this issue occurs, it's many things to many people. So for this conversation, could you please explain the Affordable uh, Care Act, the Reader's Digest version? Yeah, I think that the, you know, the Affordable Care Act, which is also called Obamacare, 
is uh, basically two major um, uh, initiatives um, to increase the percentage of Americans who have health insurance and, and, and to try and offer health insurance to everybody. Uh, the first initiative was the expansion of state Medicaid programs. And so um, the highest rates of uninsurance in the U.S. were among people uh, below um, uh, the poverty level. And so the law expanded and provided financial incentives by uh, providing considerable federal support to, for states to expand their Medicaid programs uh, to, targeted, to target the poorest residents. Um, the second major initiative of the Affordable Care Act has been to provide subsidies for Americans who are above the poverty level, um, up to 400% of the poverty level, to provide subsidies for people to buy private insurance in state-regulated marketplaces called exchanges. Uh, and this is an idea that dates back to the, the 1970s and was developed by an economist at um, Stanford University, Alan Entoven, who said that um, we should we, we should reform the American health care system by creating um, uh, purchasing groups and steering people into these groups um, so that they have more purchasing power. So the idea of putting people into a state marketplace that's regulated is an idea that's been around for over 40 years. Was this, was this the plan that uh, uh, Richard Nixon and Teddy Kennedy were floating around with? Was this, was this the plan? Was that a different plan? No, that was different, actually. So Entoven uh, published his first um, – he developed this idea during the 70s, but uh, really it, it, it was sort of launched uh, in a very public way when he published a book – uh, and wrote um, two articles based on the book that were appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1979, um, outlining his approach, and he called it managed competition. In other words, he said that uh, we should rely on the best features of the private market, but private markets and healthcare don't always function properly, and so it needs to be managed and, and regulated. So we need to regulate the market. Um, and this idea of managed competition uh, is really sort of the the underlying intellectual or you know conceptual basis for what became the Affordable Care Act. Now, now, in order for the Affordable Care Act to work, uh, as is, as is, uh, at least in theory, it requires a mix uh, of healthy individuals with the, who, who, in theory, would use the system less but would be paying into it as well as those who are ill who would be paying more. Yeah. Is that is that pretty much the, the, the thinking? Well, that's the thinking because that's the way that insurance works. Um, it's, in, health insurance is, is similar to other forms of insurance, and the way that all insurance works is it's a, meth, it's a mechanism for spreading risk. Um, you, the only way that you can keep premiums affordable is if uh, you have lots of people who are buying the protection um, but aren't necessarily using the services um, and uh, they're insuring against you know possible uh, bad outcomes but um, aren't necessarily using and having bad outcomes constantly so it's really important the idea of, of risk sharing and having people who are paying into the system but not heavy users of the system um, in any given year. Um, and that's the way, you know, health insurance works 
uh, in the large group insurance market, uh, which is employment-based insurance. Uh, it's the way it works in the Medicare program. And um, that's the way uh, it was as intended to work in the Affordable Care Act exchange markets. Now, in theory, and we're going to we're going to uh, uh, soon move to the to the, the new proposed plan. But in theory, how central uh, was the, or is the individual mandate to the success of the Affordable Care Act? Well, I think it's it's absolutely essential. Um, it, the if you don't have a requirement that people either buy into the mark into the uh, market or um, uh, pay some tax for not being insured, then it creates an incentive which uh, is known as a free rider effect, which is that I can sit on the sidelines, I don't have to buy insurance until I need it, uh, and then I jump in. Uh, I can't be denied because the law says that you've got to offer me insurance, and the law also says that you can't charge me more because I'm sicker. Um, So I'll just wait until I get sick, jump into the market, um, and then maybe jump back out after, you know, whatever happens. Maybe I have an appendectomy or something like that. Or, you know, maybe I have a, an illness that uh, isn't uh, uh, permanent um, and lifelong. And so, you know, when that episode's over, I won't need insurance again. Um, so I think the individual mandate is or some mechanism to compel people to be in the market uh, is important. Otherwise, you're just going to get the heavy users participating, and that just causes premiums to rise. Now, where, in your view, sir, has the Affordable Care Act fallen short? I think the, the couple areas where it hasn't worked um, as well as intended. Um, it's a big country. The U.S. is a big country. And so in California, uh, it's working well because we have four big insurance companies that have relatively similar um, market shares. Um, So there's a lot of market competition in California, both in uh, the uh, exchange as well as in the insurance market outside the exchange, um, in the employment-based market as well as in the individual market. Um, Other states um, are dominated by one or two insurers, and as a result, um, they're uh, going in. uh, There wasn't necessarily a lot of competition and if you're in a state that has only two major insurance companies and one of them decides not to play in the exchange market because it's a relatively small market, um, then you don't have any competition. And I think that that um, is, uh been one of the shortcomings uh, of the ACA, that there are too many markets with, with not enough insurers. Um, If uh, now related to that, because uh, you, you 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 mentioned you mentioned it in your earlier answer, uh, if there was nothing known today, as known as the Affordable Care Act, never passed, um, would insurance premiums still have risen over the time period from say 2010 till now? Which would they have still risen just based on the data that you have? Well, we we certainly know that insurance premiums. Um, uh, for private insurance uh, over the last um, 10 to 20 years have gone up faster than um, uh, uh, cost in the public insurance programs. 
and um, there's no reason to believe that uh, they went up faster because of the ACA. In fact, there's uh, evidence to suggest they went up slower. Um, but that's not been the experience in every state. Um, it's certainly, you know, again, in, in California was true. Um, but we've got co- we've got a competitive market in states with less competitive markets. Uh, the premiums uh, have gone up faster, especially this last year, um, because of the phase out of something called the reinsurance program. And um, you know, this was uh, part of the Affordable Care Act that um, provided insurance companies with um, additional payments if they had. Uh, really expensive members, um, and you know you could argue that this this reinsurance program is something that probably shouldn't have been phased out as quickly, and uh, maybe um, could have been or should have been continued over a longer period of time to create more stability in the market. But um, congressional Republicans have uh, never been interested in trying to to uh, fix Obamacare. And certainly when uh, President Obama was still in office, there was no way that they were going to provide him with any um, uh, legislative relief to modify the program to make it work better because uh, their sole intention was to see it collapse so that they could repeal it as fast as possible. Uh, now that they're in power uh, and, and uh, having to uh, face the uh, responsibility for potentially taking insurance away from people, um, the, you know, at least some congressional Republicans are uh, singing a different tune uh, and are showing a, a surprising and sudden uh, concern for the potential loss of insurance among their constituents. Um, it's no longer just um, uh, speech making, uh, but now uh, they understand that you know they're going to be accountable for thousands of people in their districts perhaps losing their health insurance benefits. Well, in a strange way, it goes back to your previous answer about the uh, the need for the individual mandate so that I couldn't have a free ride on the, on the health insurance piece. So now they can no longer have a free ride. So now it's... That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, they had a free ride for a long time because they could just uh, sit on the sideline and say it's a horrible law, it's a horrible law, and we need to get rid of it. Okay, so get rid of it and... See if your constituents like that, and they're they're facing their constituents at these town hall meetings now, um, who are very angry at the potential loss of their health insurance benefits. Doesn't mean that the law is the uh, ACA is perfect, and it doesn't mean that it's worked for everybody, uh, but it's worked for millions of Americans, and we have never seen this large a reduction in the number of uninsured Americans since 1966 when the Medicare program went into effect. If you're just joining us, uh, I'm speaking with Dr. Gerald Kominsky, director of the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. And on, on based on your last answer, um, a perfect segue again. Um, so when you look at the proposed legislation emanating from the House of Representatives, what do you see in light of our uh, previous conversation about the Affordable Care Act? It's devastation. It's carnage. I, uh, you know, whether uh, congressional Republicans have decided that their best strategy is to attack CBO and say that they're they've never been accurate in their estimates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even if they're off by, let's say, a hundred percent, and it's only twelve million people are going to lose their health insurance, why would we enact a law 
that's going to throw 12 million people under the bus. Um, we have never, as a nation, taken a step forward to provide uh, a fundamental benefit to so many millions of Americans, only to turn around a few years later and yank it away from them uh, in the uh, in the name of some political ideal, which is that um, uh, you know Representative Ryan is saying, well, uh, this is, we're 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 giving people choice, and it doesn't. He's basically saying, I don't care if people choose not to be insured; they should have the choice to to. Um, lose their health insurance because they can't afford it anymore. It's such a ridiculous proposition, um, and it will be damaging. And the cost is not just uh, uh, to the, the government and taxpayers, because if we roll back the clock, uh, we end up paying for the cost of uninsured individuals. We just pay for it uh, through hidden costs. We pay through higher insurance premiums. Um, we pay in different ways, but there's a human cost as well. And what it means is that for 24 million Americans, um, losing their health insurance means that they bear uh, the, the clinical and the medical uh, and the human cost of being sicker than they need to be because they can't afford health insurance again. And we know for a fact uh Kaiser Research has done a number of studies on this. That the, the number one piece, number one reason that people go into bankruptcy uh, is because of catastrophic health bills. That's exactly right. Um, and so, you know, we've made tremendous progress um, over the last three years, the last four years, um, and we are just going to pretend like none of that mattered. Um, at least the Republicans are want us to pretend like none of that mattered because they have a better plan, and the better plan um, just doesn't make it make sense. It just does not add up. But they're out there selling it. Well, Dr. Kaminsky, given your work, um, you mentioned the Congressional Budget Office (CBO). Um, they, as you also mentioned, they, they estimated that some 24 million people will be uninsured by 2026. On the other side. Uh, and Representative Ryan was noting the fact he didn't like that part, but he did, but he did like the fact that they also estimated that three hundred and thirty-seven billion dollars would be cut from the federal deficit. Yeah. Given that we're talking about health care, and for some of the reasons you already mentioned, it sort of makes health policy unique. Uh, is there any way that those two statistics can be reconciled? Or do we just have to say, you know what, we're going to have to deal with the deficit in a different way, but human lives are more important, or we're going to pay, we're going to play triage with human lives? Can, can those two be reconciled? Well, look, I think that the that the, the problem with the, the, the CBO estimate um, is that the CBO's job is to is to estimate the impact of proposed legislative changes on the federal budget, the federal budget. It does not look at the overall cost to the U.S. economy and to state and local governments. So all that saying, the $337 billion savings over a 10-year period is a reduction in federal expenditures, which is another way of saying that we're just going to shift those costs onto the people who are now uninsured, and maybe the states will pick up some of that cost because – People will show up in public hospitals. Uh, 
doctors and hospitals will pick up some of that cost because they'll still treat patients uh, who show up even if they don't have health insurance. Uh, and the people who lose their health insurance will bear those costs because they won't go to the doctor and they'll wait until they're really sick and they'll show up at the emergency room with an illness that could have been treated more effectively if they had regular access to a doctor. So the costs don't go away. They just get wiped off the federal budget, and that's all that Representative Ryan cares about. He doesn't care about the cost to society. He doesn't care about the cost to the U.S. population. What he cares about is reducing federal spending. That's all he cares about, and that's what conservatives are um, uh uh, completely determined to do, exclusively focused on federal spending. And if they can reduce federal spending, the fact that other costs are being passed on don't matter to them one bit. Uh, President Trump just stated today, in fact, I think it was today or last night, that uh, he's put a forewarned everybody that premiums would rise until 2020, which I guess coincidentally is time for re-election. When you hear statements like that, sir, what, what goes through your mind? That the, uh, uh, that the premiums will, will go up? Until 2020, yeah. 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 You know. Well, I, I think that the, you know, that's based on, on CBO's uh, estimate. And, uh, you know, what they're saying is that um, the uh, Republican plan that was released this week has uh, – uh, or last week, I mean, has um, uh, it, it? It's a transitional plan, uh, so it makes some changes immediately, uh, and then it makes a lot of changes starting in 2020. Um, and uh, premiums uh, start to go down in 2020 uh, uh, because. Some of the sort of shakeout in the market uh, is already going to occur. You're going to have lots of people losing insurance and not being able to afford it. Um, and it looks like the people who are going to be least able to afford insurance in the new world are the oldest and the sickest. Um, and if you can segregate the market and get the high spenders out of the market, premiums will start to go down. It doesn't mean that health insurance is more affordable per se. It just means that you've found a way to keep the high-cost cases um, out of the marketplace. Which, in that sense, based on your previous answer, sir, that, that's sort of the antithesis of the goal of the Affordable Care Act. Well, the Affordable Care Act was intended to make sure that everybody was in the marketplace. Um, and not to, to find a way to keep the high-cost pa uh, patients sitting on, uh, uh, to segregate them. Um, that's what the market used to do prior to the ACA. Uh, the individual states allowed insurance companies, uh, for the most part, um, uh, to segment the market based on risk. And um, the ACA said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. You can't. You can't charge people, uh, you can't basically tax them for being sick. But studies also show that everybody likes pre-existing, you know, no pre-existing conditions. People like no lifetime ban. 
people like uh, you have being able to have your uh, son or daughter up until age 26. But you can't have – or option sessions that I should ask you – can you have the type of proposal that the Republicans are putting out and still keep those things in place? Well, it's going to be hard, and that's what they're proposing to do, um, because they can't. They're passing – they want to pass this law or this bill using a reconciliation process, so they can't change uh, – Sir, say what – non- would you say what, just say what reconciliation is? I'm sorry. Yeah, reconciliation is just it, – it's through a budgetary uh, procedure. In other words, they're making budgetary changes uh, to the uh, Affordable Care Act. They're either changing them or they're repealing them or they're replacing the budgetary components. But the aspects of the law, like guaranteeing that you can't be charged more because of a preexisting condition, that's not a budgetary aspect of the law, so they can't – change that in this in this proposed bill they'd have to figure out a different way to do that later um and the reason they're using this budgetary approach or reconciliation approach is that congress you can pass a law with only 51 votes in the senate rather than having to um be have something that's filibuster proof um and so that's their strategy um if you, you know, so if you preserve the pre-existing condition protections, uh, which is what is in the Republican plan, um, you know, that is a very popular provision. Um, but it's the subsidies that go into effect in 2020 that shift the incentives considerably. The subsidies overall favor young people versus old people, Um to a much greater extent, and the sub they the law also would change the range of premiums that can be charged between the youngest and the oldest, uh, and allowed to go back to five to one uh, ratio, meaning that old the oldest individuals would have to pay five times more than the youngest, whereas under the ACA it's only three times more. That means that insurance is going to be more expensive to people over age 50 in general, uh, and the subsidy is going to be smaller. And as a result, those individuals are going to struggle a lot more to afford insurance starting in 2020 when the full force of this proposal goes into effect. Uh, Younger people uh, are going to be better off their insurance will go down uh and their tax credit in some cases will be even more generous than the current subsidies available under obamacare so younger people might be more are probably more likely to to be insured than they are today so we're going to swap we're going to provide a way of keeping older people out of the market having more young people in and that alone will bring premiums down. Dr. Gerald Kaminsky, Director of UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. I, like, I want to thank you, sir, for being on the public rally today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. That was Dr. Gerald Kaminsky. Stay tuned as I speak with Bob Peterson about the state of Arkansas's attempt to ban the work of Howard Zinn 
from their public schools. Welcome back. A Republican lawmaker in Arkansas recently introduced a bill in the state legislature to prevent public schools from assigning books and articles written by Howard Zinn, in particular, A People's History of the United States, which tells American history from the perspective of the poor and marginalized. Zinn, the late professor who taught at Boston University, was lionized by many liberals, while equally vilified by many conservatives. However one feels about Zen, should government officials be in the business of banning books? To answer that question is Bob Peterson. Peterson is a coordinator for Rethinking Schools as well as the Zen Educational Project. Bob Peterson, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Mm-hmm. Why don't we begin by you, in your own words, defining what is education? I know, a dictionary definition is, of course, that which students uh, either learn or teachers impart. But I, I think for our discussion this morning, two things are worth noting about the definition. One is free public education is a constitutional right protected in the state constitutions of every state in the nation. And that constitutional right is really now under attack at the state and federal levels as people attempt to privatize their public institutions. And interestingly, some of the very same people are attempting to ban books like Howard Zinn's uh, proponents of these private school vouchers and privately run charter schools. Now, the second thing that I think is important is the quantity and quality and the type of education varies greatly through our country, of course. In the poorest urban and rural communities, public schools are under-resourced and students don't receive an education on par with the most affluent suburban schools. And and both in poor and affluent communities, education is, in my mind, too textbook-driven, teacher-centered, and chained to an obsession with standardized testing. And there is one narrative of our nation's history that dominates, unfortunately, and that narrative is challenged by books like The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Well, uh, since <laughs> that's a perfect segue for my next question. Since you mentioned The People's History, can you give us a... Reader's Digest version, because that's, that's about all we have the time for anyway. So, <laughs> Sure. Well, Zinn's history is a story of American people written from the perspective of those on the bottom of our society, those who have historically been ignored in social studies textbooks. Zinn recounts the history of the U.S. from the point of view of the Native Americans who lost their lands, of the enslaved Africans who were brought over the bottoms of, of ships, the, the men and women who worked the fields and the factories of our country. And he uses a lot of primary sources, quoting extensively from those people. So it's a very refreshing anecdote to the dominant narrative, which tends to look at our history from those of the victors, the rich and the, the powerful. Well, you know, you, you just mentioned something that just struck me. I think, I think that um, we tend to make the dominant narrative the narrative, 
But all those things that Howard Zinn are talking about are, st- are still part of, a, of the American narrative. Absolutely. In fact, I, I like to say and tell my students in fifth grade who I've taught for many years that, uh, you know, we're a great nation, but we're great because of the struggles that of all these different people have, who have fought to extend democracy, extend social justice in our society. And those people and those struggles, we have to learn from because to continue a democratic society is, is always a work in progress. Is, there's always struggles to be had to make our society more fair, any society, I'm not just speaking on our society. Uh, and so I think that's really important for students to have the opportunity to learn those perspectives that are often left out of textbooks or as one of my students once said, are put in the boxes in the textbooks. You know, you might have a box in the Sojourner Truth or Harriet Tubman, mm-hmm. but the dominant narrative doesn't uh, usually include those as it should. So you, you sort of touched on it already, but I just want to follow up this line of thinking. So why, in your view, is a people's history, and more specifically Howard Zinn, such a lightning rod for something? Well, that's a good question. I, th- I think a lot of people don't know the real history of the United States, don't know what he is trying to teach, and that includes legislators, it includes parents, it includes voters, but frankly, it includes teachers often. And I, but I believe the real issue is that if, if a lot of people were to learn uh, the real the people's history of the United States and learn to look at conflicts and problems from various points of view, learn to ask questions like, in whose interest, whose interests are served by these points of view, I think if people were skilled in those in that important sort of critical inquiry, as some people say, we would challenge the power structure and the class and racial and gender inequities in a society. People wouldn't be so quick to uh, accept, or shall we say, alternative facts or the dominant point of view. Yeah, it, it, would, it would be as if um, James Baldwin wrote Gone with the Wind from a slave's <laughs> perspective. That would be a very, very different book. <laughs> yeah, it sure would. And, and it's, you know, what I find is that it's, it's so important that, you know, the curriculum should equip students to be able to talk back to the world and that students learn to pose essential critical questions. Like I said, who makes the decisions? Who's left out? Uh, who benefits? Who suffers? Why is a given practice fair or unfair? And what are its origins? And, and what alternatives could we imagine? And what's required to create change? I, I like to believe that we all should have civic courage, which I define as the notion that we should act as if we live in a democracy. Uh, Because, as I say, democracy is a work in progress. Um, Let's talk about the uproar in Arkansas. Uh, What was it, as you you understand it, and um, to ban a people's history? Well, this was a proposed piece of legislation, which is still, in my understanding, going to be considered at a committee level in the legislature. It's not dissimilar to what happened in Indiana, where a similar legislation was proposed, and something else in, uh, in Tucson, Arizona, which you might talk about, where certain books were banned. And basically, it explicitly states that uh, teachers should not use and students should not learn the works of Howard Zinn. Uh, I mean, it really focuses on him. And it's, 
I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry if I just want to cut you for a second. So I'm going to be clear. So it's not just the people's history, but it's the works of Howard Zinn. Is that correct? Yes, that's my understanding. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It is. Um, and But, you know, if you had people's history is the main work, and it's the main thing that has been used in schools. And now there's actually a, a younger people's uh, version for, of it, uh, you know, written for middle schoolers. Uh, that is also popular amongst some teachers. So certainly that's that's the focus. The legislator who introduced it, uh, elderly man who is actually, I think, brother of the governor, um, when asked about it, and I'm reading uh, some of the news accounts, it basically said, well, he, he wanted to, he didn't want students to have a distorted view of history. He didn't want... Uh, them to understand things from that point of view. And, it, and in fact, I personally, and I think a lot of teachers who use Howard don't want students to have a distorted view of history. They want an all-sided view. That is to say that students be exposed to multiple perspectives. And what better, in my mind, than having a very well-researched uh, book that uses a lot of quotes from the people from our history uh, to describe that to the students. If you're just joining us, my guest is Bob Peterson, co-founder of Rethinking Schools and the Zen Education Project. And we're talking about the proposed legislation in Arkansas, uh, legislature to ban Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the United States, well, actually to ban all of Howard Zinn's work um, in public schools. Now, now to that, to that last point, uh, Bob, it's my understanding that this originated because a number of parents within, was it Representative, Representative Hendren's district? Hendren, yes, that's his yeah. district, yes. Um, <clears throat> they were concerned about the use of a people's history. Now, it's my understanding that each Arkansas state legislature represents, according to the 2010 census, 78,000 people. Uh-huh. Now, there are 3 million people that live in the state of Arkansas. Uh-huh. Now, assuming that all 78,000 uh, in, in, in Hendricks District wanted to ban a people's history, that is an inordinate amount of power to give to one group of people to have sway over the rest of the state. I agree. I think it also is worth noting, though, that according to the Bill of Rights and our Constitution, the majority doesn't, even if it was a majority of people, you can't abridge certain people's rights. Whether you know, certainly freedom of expression is is one of those which I find uh, very important to uphold, and it's something that, in fact, the rest of the world can learn from. However, it's under attack here. It's not only, and we we've seen in different cases. And the American Library Association has uh, an annual uh, tally of various children's books and stuff that are. Uh, the people attempt to censor from libraries and so on and so forth. And I think it's a question of academic freedom, intellectual freedom, that students should have the right, teachers should have the right to use books such as Howard Zinn. Now, I, I think there's some, there's, there probably there are some limits. I mean, if somebody wanted to uh, use a book that is, you know, basically pro-Nazi or something, I would have problems with that. At the same time, I think students should, when they study World War II, they should read the originals of, of Hitler and 
and analyze them. It's, it's not like I don't think that uh, those kind right. of you wouldn't buy you wouldn't ban Mein Kampf. No, I wouldn't. Right. If that was the main, I would have some serious questions if that was the main text in a, uh, of the of the history of a history. You know, well, if the class was called Hitler reexamined. Okay, that that might be. <laughs> That might, yeah. be, that might be cause for concern. I, I, I take your point. Yeah. And so it's, I think the issue becomes, though, one of whether or not we think uh, students should be exposed to a variety of perspectives, especially those perspectives that historically have been silenced in our society. And I, I strongly believe that. And in fact, now more than ever, given the political uh, wins in our society. I think students deserve the right to look at how history has been made from the bottom up. And certainly one of the things that Howard Zinn emphasizes is that social movements are crucial to the betterment of our society and the transformation of society. And he personally was very involved in the civil rights movement in the South, and I think he, his whole life was shaped by that. And that, that movement continues to be one that should be studied and, two, hopefully that will be enhanced as we continue to work for civil rights in our society. I believe that education has to include the notion that students should be encouraged to be civically active in our society, that they should hopefully be motivated to learn about what's going on, and then no matter what they think, even if they disagree with the teacher, of course, they should be encouraged to, to speak out and act. Uh, many social movements throughout the history have included younger people, and we can learn from them. Well, well change is, is, is ultimately a young person's enterprise. I mean, the people who, <laughs> the people who founded this country were young, were by and large, young men. The, civil, right. the civil rights movement that you referred to, uh, earlier was a movement led by young men and women. I mean, it's so, I mean, change, I mean, I'm at a point now, I, I, I just want to change um, very little in my life. So change is a young person's <laughs> enterprise. Um, what has been the response um, for those of you affiliated with the Zen Project in light of this proposed ban? Well, one thing, just so people, your listeners might not know, the Zen, Edu Zen Education Project, I encourage people to check out uh, that on the Internet, and as, long as, uh, as well as Reteaching Schools and uh, Teaching for Change, the two groups that run the Zen Project. The Zen Education Project, once we heard about this, we put out an offer. We basically said to uh, Arkansas middle school and high school teachers that uh, we stand in solidarity with their right to teach in this way, and that if they would contact us and tell us what school they worked at, we would send them a free copy of People's History of the Classroom, uh, I mean, P People's History of Zinn's Project, I mean, Zinn's book, excuse me, People's History of the United States, plus a book that we published called The People's History of the Classroom, which is basically teaching ideas and role plays and ways to make that come alive in the classroom to anyone who requested it. And we thought we'd get a, you know, 100, 200 people. We've gotten over 700 requests from teachers and librarians. And in, Ar in Arkansas. In Arkansas, yeah. We've gotten requests from other states, but sorry, teachers in other states, we can't, uh, we don't, we can't afford to send you this free of charge. Uh, but, yeah, we are fulfilling our commitments. We did a fundraising campaign 
on the internet to raise more money because we not only have to buy some of the books, but we have to mail them all, and that is an expense. Now, some of the publishers have given us donate, donated books, Haymarket Books, Seven Stories Press, the New Press, and Beacon Press, and HarperCollins have, have donated some to us, and we appreciate that. Um, it's interesting. We've asked each of the teachers when they ask for the book to make a few comments, and I'd just like to read a couple. It's, sure, go right ahead. This, this is from a middle school librarian in Western Grove, Arkansas. It says, the proposed bill to ban Mr. Zinn's book has fired up the Arkansas librarian's world. To combat ignorance, I must, I must have knowledge. I respectively request a copy so I can educate my tiny corner of the world. Another, another librarian wrote, librarians are warriors against censorship. We will gladly share this book with our students and staff. Thank you, and keep fighting the good fight for the freedom of information, the freedom to read, and the freedom to read the truth. And uh, there's many other stories that we've collected, and they're very heartwarming and powerful. One wrote about how he learned about Howard Zinn in his eighth grade classroom in a different state, and it had such an impact on him. He became a social studies teacher, and he, he uses that same book because he thinks his students should learn from that point of view as well. Uh, now, in fairness, uh, this, this started because there were parents concerned about uh, their children reading a people's history. What should, in your view as an educator, what should uh, the role of education be, uh, be with parents? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think parents should be involved in their children's education and play an active role in the democratic governance of their schools. I appreciate school boards, even though I don't always agree with them as a teacher. That being said, we should all try to educate parents about the importance of their children receiving an all-rounded education where students learn to think critically and to look at issues from multiple perspectives and detect bias and stereotypes and, and to learn to counter racism and sexism and religious bigotry because uh, that's what democracy is all about. You know, I think it's interesting because I, when I taught fifth grade, I taught for 30 years, I had my students put Christopher Columbus on trial for genocide. You had the kids divide into four groups. One is Columbus and his lawyers, and another is the king and queen and their lawyers, the, the crew and their lawyers, and the Tainos, the, the Native Americans who Columbus met. And at first, I had some parents say, well, what's going on here? You know, what are you talking about? Columbus is a, a hero. And I said, well, he's a hero in some, from one point of view. Certainly, he was a great sailor and adventurer. From other points of view, he wasn't. I, and I invited those parents to my classroom to watch the students interact and, and express different points of view. And every time that I had a complaint and invited a parent to come in and they watched their students sit or talk for actually two straight hours, fifth grade 10-year-old boys, it's pretty challenging to do that, uh, they were impressed. And they said, you know, this is great. This is the kind of education all kids should deserve, where they, they examine different points of view and they develop their own perspective. Uh, now, the fact that they're hearing a perspective about from a Native American point of view, which is certainly incorporated in much of Zim's writing, is different than probably what their parents received. Certainly different from what I received when I went to elementary school several decades ago. But I think many parents, once they're 
shown that teachers aren't trying to, quote, brainwash kids, but trying to get kids to think critically can be won over to that point of view. Uh, now, that being said, obviously, there are some parents who, for religious reasons, believe certain things, and, and they often send their kids to religious schools, and that's fine. Private schools should be allowed to teach whatever they want to teach. However, unfortunately, uh, even in Arkansas now, there's a bill being proposed to put public funds into private religious schools, and then you're really dealing with issues as, uh, that are more difficult. For instance, now in, in New Orleans and Milwaukee, there are hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent on private schools, religious schools, taxpayers' dollars for these voucher programs, and some of them are very explicit in <laughs> teaching you know, creationism and not evolution, teaching uh, uh, bigotry towards homosexuals, teaching um, that women should be subordinate to men. And <clears throat> that is people's right to believe that. I believe in religious freedom. And in fact, I believe if you want to send your child to a religious school and learn that, that's your right. I don't believe that public funds should be spent in that kind of situation. So you've already started uh, my next question. Uh, but, <laughs> but no, this is perfect. Perfect segue, because I wanted to go beyond um, the specifics of a people's history and discuss the overall danger of, of banning books in a free society. Yes. I mean, I think we can see that. I think when you look at both our country's history and you look at the history of many dictatorships around the world, one of the key elements of the totalitarian tendency within a government is to try to put limits on the freedom of press, try to limit what people read in schools, and try to get people to think in one particular way and not question those who are in power. And that, to me, is dangerous. And quite frankly, I see some of that happening today uh, at the federal and state levels where people are um, you know, targeting the press and calling it all sorts of names. And I don't agree with everything in the press, but I, I agree that the press should have free reign in terms of uh, reporting and investigating. And similarly, I believe that teachers and schools should be able to use books, certainly at an age-appropriate level, uh, that help students question the dominant narrative even when that's uncomfortable for those who know nothing but. Even if the intent is a benign one, uh, those who seek the ban, in this case of people's history, there's a gulf between them and and the reality, of which would be those who are deprived from reading such uh, works. Can we ever have those dilemmas reconciled? <sighs> that's another good question. I guess I go back to my example of, inviting parents into classrooms and watching what really goes on in a classroom where kids can critically examine and explore different points of view and try to evaluate them. I think that that's one way. On the other hand, I think there are some people who are so set in their ways, they would sacrifice the First Amendment. They would sacrifice some of the cherished, cherished beliefs and um, principles of the democratic government and uh, destroy them. Whether or not they would admit to that, I'm not sure. But So I, I, 
I think what it, to me, what that means is that teachers and parents and students and civic-minded people who are concerned about what you just raised need to organize themselves, need to be adamant that schools should rely on approaches that encourage students to look critically at things. Bob Peterson, co-founder, Rethinking Schools and the Zen Education Project. Thank you, sir, for being on the public morality today. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Bob Peterson. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. Imagine the late actor Burl Ives in his role as Big Daddy from the movie Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Ives is standing in the Oval Office, surrounded by President Donald Trump and members of his administration. Suddenly, Ives remarks, What's that smell in this room? Didn't you notice it, Mr. President? Didn't you notice a powerful, obnoxious odor of mendacity in this room? There ain't nothing more powerful than the odor of mendacity. You can smell it. Smells like death. Less than 60 days in office, the president and his administration have managed to permeate the White House with the powerful and obnoxious odor of mendacity. It's not a matter of subjective difference of opinion. We're talking about provable falsehoods. What should be the perception of any presidential administration consistently guilty of false statements? A, no perception. They're simply acting in concert with their predecessors. B, it doesn't matter because I support the administration. Or C, unacceptable. Any response other than C ought to be a non-starter. Any other choice is to become morally agnostic, where one's sense of right and wrong is inextricably linked to political support. And what happens, God forbid, if a national crisis occurs and the president must use the moral credibility of the office to ask the American people to grant him the benefit of the doubt. At this rate, he would be morally bankrupt, with only the formal power of the office at his disposal, an option usually reserved only for authoritarians. The pattern that the president has created does not simply mar his administration, it taints America. It's not just a matter of being president. One must also be presidential, taken together, They represent the formal and informal correlatives required to lead. But Big Daddy is right. Mendacity smells like death. The death of the administration's moral credibility. And that's the wrong direction, assuming the goal remains toward that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. I would like to thank my guests today, Gerald Kaminsky and Bob Peterson. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.
Thank you.